Former defense attorney Larry Krasner was elected district attorney of Philadelphia in 2017, and since his tenure began, he has made significant changes to how the office runs. From not charging petty crimes, to sentencing below the guidelines, to firing dozens of ADAs who weren't on board with his plan, he has caught the eyes of criminal justice advocates nationwide while ruffling lots of feathers in Philadelphia. Some say he's gone too far, some say he hasn't gone far enough. He sat down with us when he came to UT to recruit new employees to carry out his vision. So my name is Larry Krasner. I am, to many people's surprise, the elected district attorney of Philadelphia County. Have been in office now coming up on nine months. Um, and I am here with a top member of the team. And my name is Patricia Cummings, and I am working with Larry. I'm from Austin, worked in Austin most of my career, and I am running the Conviction Integrity Unit and the Special Investigations Unit for Larry in Philadelphia. All right. And to give people an idea of why your election, Mr. Krasner, has been so uh, important, I'm going to just list off some of the policy changes that were released in a memo to the office, and we can talk about them from there. Um, line prosecutors don't charge marijuana possession or buying from a person, uh, theft under $500 without priors, prostitution for people with less than three convictions, uh, quid marijuana and DUI gets diverted where available, and departures from that policy go up to the unit supervisor and then up to you to be approved. Um, sentencing at the bottom of the guidelines for nonviolent offenses. So how has that worked? Uh, how is that, what have the results been that you've seen so far? So what we have in Philly and many other places is a bloated system. You have far too many people who are being brought into the criminal justice system, charged with more than they should, sometimes charged with something when they should not, as in the way in the case of uh, possession of marijuana, those charges are a waste of time. And what you then, of course, have is too many people being given permanent criminal records that disable them from participating in the economy, being able to get student loans, buy homes, etc. So uh, we are all about reducing mass incarceration, which also means reducing mass supervision, which also means looking at all the steps along the way that gets you there. It starts at the very beginning with charging. Drastic overcharging has been the practice. We're changing that. It starts with refusing to divert. It starts with uh, having a win-at-all-cost attitude as opposed to the attitude required by your oath, which is to seek justice. So um, I could get into all the details on many of these specifics, but what we're talking about is slimming down a criminal justice system because we have a money fire going on in criminal justice and we have taken all of these resources away from a safety net that actually makes society whole. And by safety net, I mean things as simple as public schools. I went to public schools. And when I went to public schools, there was a class size that was reasonable. I got a great education. In Philadelphia right now, you got 35 kids in a class. I mean, that's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And we have only half the kids coming out of high school with a degree. 
That is also ridiculous. This is how you build a city to fail. And it is no coincidence that re until recently, Philadelphia was the, it was both the most incarcerated of the 10 largest cities and it was also the poorest of the 10 largest cities. What do you think the effect is on business when they look at a population who uh, are undereducated because we gutted the schools, who have criminal convictions so they can't employ them and consistent with their, with their insurance policies. This is a really big problem, long in the making, in Philadelphia and across the entire United States. And so we have to find ways, like these policies, to really try to slim down the criminal justice system and focus on what it should do, which is go after the 6% of criminals who commit 60% of the crime. And thank you. And other policies that came from that memo, one other one was a requirement that in sentencing recommendations, prosecutors will proffer on the record uh, this sentence that I'm seeking, Your Honor, uh, we've weighed the costs and benefits of incarceration. We believe that this sentence is worth the million dollars that it's going to take to incarcerate this person for so many years. Uh, and here's the reasons why. Do you feel that this has changed the way that prosecutors sentence and changed their view of the value of, of putting people in cages? Um, and do you think that some of the reasons, because I, I worked in a judge's chambers and when they depart upward from the guidelines, they have to put on the record why. And some judges that I saw every single time they they would upward depart every single time, and every time their response would be because you're a menace. Um, have has there been steps taken to prevent people from canning their responses to that requirement and just saying, you know, we believe this is in the interest of justice because this person is extremely dangerous to society? So there have been. You know, we have tried to do all of our policies as presumptions. And that is partly due to 30 years of experience as a criminal defense attorney, which is what I did before, and being in court four and five days a week and realizing how stupid mandatory sentencing is. Well, I don't want to have mandatory policies either. I want to have presumptions, defaults, you could call them, um, but the capacity in an individual case where the circumstances require it to move away from that policy. We have done more than simply require our assistance to talk about the cost of incarceration when they make a sentencing recommendation. We have actually set down a policy that says where you have a nonviolent offense, one that does not involve sexual assault, one that is not felon possessing a firearm, and one that doesn't involve over $50,000 worth of essentially white-collar fraud, that it is a requirement that our assistant DAs offer a negotiated sentence below the bottom end of our sentencing guidelines. Why? Well, first of all, because the law says we can. The guidelines are simply something to look at. They do not control what is done at sentencing for the judge or anybody else. And second, because we have ridiculous mass incarceration in Pennsylvania. We have an increase of 800% in our levels of custody during the same time the United States had a 500% increase. So we're even worse than the U.S., which is the most incarcerated country in the world. Those guidelines were not done by science, just like about almost everything else. They were done by a bunch of judges or a bunch of people in the Bar Association who thought they should simply average whatever sentences were being done in 60-plus different counties in Pennsylvania. So, uh, you know, Judge Hangem High in a particular county got averaged in with judges in 
an actual city where we have a lot of crime. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are large cities. Philly is the sixth largest city in the world with the fourth largest, excuse me, in the United States with the fourth largest police force. We have urban crime. Our sentences do not need to be averaged with a county where the main offenses are prison assault and hunting violations and DUIs. That is a different world, they got different issues, and they should not be dictating how much time they should put people away when those people come from Philly, especially since they're making money off of locking them up in their own jails. Jails are a big industry mm -hmm. in upstate Pennsylvania. So the point I'm getting at is we rejected those guidelines because they're stupid. Because the only thing they did was fill our jails and bankrupt our schools. And we realized that you know one simple way to approach this is to cr create a presumption that in those categories of cases, our offers need to be below that because those numbers are just too damn high. That's interesting because I think when you think of places with like high prison populations and then are really harsh on sentencing, um, Philadelphia or anywhere in the Northeast doesn't really come to mind, especially being here from Texas. Uh, so why is it or has it been that, that Philadelphia is a place that has been very harsh and maybe Patricia coming from Texas, you would know like what that difference so has been like. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start the answer to your question and then send it over to Larry. I am learning Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, so and it's a steep curve because it is totally different than Texas. But what I will say is I think contrary to what most people who have any experience with Texas and some knowledge of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania w would conclude is Texas is in a far better position um, than Philadelphia. Um, and best I can say at this point is the easy answer as to why is because Texas has been so far ahead of Pennsylvania in terms of legislating criminal justice reform. And so you do not have in Texas what I would call a lot of the draconian type sentencing statutes that Pennsylvania does. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that just makes for Pennsylvania um, to be so ripe for the over-incarceration. Not to say that there's not a problem in Texas, I'm just telling you when you compare the two, I think you would be very surprised at how Texas is really so far ahead of Pennsylvania in regard to these issues. Mm -hmm. So that to give more specifics, I think Larry's yeah. got to take over. I'm not the expert on Philadelphia yet. <laughs> Hope to be soon. So I'm, I'm going to take your question for what I think it really is, which is why should a person who believes in criminal justice, why should someone who maybe thinks perhaps I want to be a public defender, which is what I was hmm. when I started out my career, you know, and that was three years as a county public defender, two years as a federal public defender, 25 years doing my own practice, which was primarily criminal defense and civil rights for plaintiffs, usually against police for abuse, corruption, false convictions, things of that sort, right? Why should a person like that want to be a progressive prosecutor in Philadelphia? Hmm. And the answer is because there is so much work to be done. On the one hand, it's really not so different than, you know, Brian Stevenson going into the South as a 1L uh, and ending up running uh, EJI for all those years. The reason he did it is there's so much work to be done. It's so important to do it. The thing that's different about Philly is it's a wonderful place to live with a progressive population where you have a criminal justice system that is stuck in uh, Alabama in 1954. Mm -hmm. So there's not only wonderful work to do, but it's kind of nice to go home and not find yourself surrounded by people who are hostile to your mission. But, I mean, if you actually look at Pennsylvania... It had more juvenile lifers than any other state in the country, which meant it had more than any country in the world. 
Pennsylvania is second to Florida for the most people doing life without the possibility of parole. It's one of only four states where you can get life without the possibility of parole if you are a non-shooter in a felling murder, meaning the bigger kid who's with you went and did something you totally didn't expect and you never held the gun. Life without the possibility of parole. According to Vinnie Schiraldi, who was the former chief probation officer for the city of New York and, did, and is now at the Justice Lab at Columbia Law School, Pennsylvania is the worst state in the United States for excessive parole, an issue that has drawn some attention around uh, you know, the Meek Mill case. Uh, it is the third worst in the United States for, the for excessive supervision, meaning the combination of probation and parole. Some of it has to do with the statutes, which, for example, require that a sentence be X to 2X or X to 3X or X to 4X. So no matter what you do, you've got a period of parole that's at least as long as the amount of time you did in jail. That's just not true in many other states. Some states you get three years in jail, you do three years in jail, and you're done. It's not followed by three more years of parole, which is then followed by five or ten years of probation, which goes on in Pennsylvania all the time. So, you know, Pennsylvania got itself into this mess, and, and I can't speak to Texas exactly other than to say I think Pennsylvania's position is more like California. People think of California as being some kind of a hippie haven, but for those of us who actually live there, which I have, it is two blue dots in a big red sea. And so is Pennsylvania. It's two blue dots in a big red sea. Pennsylvania went Donald Trump in the last election. No offense to Trump people, but it went Donald Trump in the last election, despite the notion that it's some kind of snobby East Coast uh, you know, type place. It has, it has a different feel when you get outside of the major cities. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of layers to that. I won't bore you with the details. But in the same way that California came with three strikes laws, and they filled up all their jails until the point where their jails burst, and then they had to do the realignment and come up with a law to let a lot of those people back out, people who, by the way, are committing crimes at very low rates, even though they were determined to be such monsters, they had to die in jail. In the same way that's happening there, things like that are starting to happen in Pennsylvania. We, we, we seem to follow California's mistakes and corrections around. We're just about 10 years behind all of that. So this real, for someone who thinks, gee, I want to be a public defender because I want to make sure the underdog isn't getting stepped on, well, you might want to be a public defender with power. Power. And what that means is being a progressive district attorney. And I'm not dissing public defenders. I was one. I loved mm -hmm. that job. I think I did a ton of individual justice. But you want to talk about having a large impact on a large number of people. That's also a valuable thing to do. And I believe that that is what the progressive prosecutor's offices in this country are doing now. On the topic of supervision and probation, your office was recently in the news for refusing to go forward with a Daisy Cates motion. And a Daisy Cates motion is basically where the, uh, the DA brings the probation violation to court before the charge or before the going to trial on the, on the conduct itself. Uh, can you talk about why a judge might prefer that the probation violation come first, why it historically has come first, and the policy that your office has which cuts against that? So some of that is correct. Daisy Cates is the name of a case in Pennsylvania that says where there is no conviction, if you can uh, prove during a violation hearing to a judge that the crime occurred, then you can still have a violation based upon that. It is almost never done. In fact, I don't know that in 30 years I've ever seen it done before the trial. What is the point? Why not wait until the trial and if there is a conviction, 
then you actually have a finding beyond a reasonable doubt and you proceed on that direct violation. I have seen it done where there was no conviction. For example, the witnesses just wouldn't show up and the case got dropped, but people felt strongly that the crime had occurred. I've seen it done. Um, you know, I am not going to speak of this judge in particular because I've made a commitment, and I think it's very important, to respect the independence of the judiciary and not to bully them in the press. It's led to a lot of really long sentences, having this dynamic where DAs can bully judges and the judges are not ethically permitted to respond in the press. So I'm not going to speak about the specific judge. But I am going to say this, in the same way that we are respecting the independence of the judiciary, we understand they will not always agree with us. The, what occurred in this case is an invasion of the independence of the prosecution. A lot of judges, and again, I'm not speaking specifically of this one, are ex-prosecutors. A lot of them are used to a form of prosecution that got us to mass incarceration and giant death rows of people who are never executed. That's what they did. And a lot of them sat on the bench, and while they were on the bench, they gave us these incredibly long sentences and long periods of supervisions. Well, some of them are not happy that you know, an overwhelming number of voters in the biggest landslide in the last 20 years in Philadelphia elected a progressive DA who's going a different direction. And some of them think that if the DA's office says, we are not going to do a Daisy Cates hearing, we don't think Daisy Cates is right in this particular case. They think it's their job to decide what should be prosecuted. So what actually occurred, and this is all public record, I'm not giving away secrets, what actually occurred is that my office said, no, we will not do the Daisy Cates hearing. That is our decision. It is our prosecutorial discretion to decide it. And the judge said, well, then you're fired. I am firing the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, and I am appointing an independent prosecutor who happened to be a defense attorney to go ahead and do this. And then she essentially ordered that person not to make his own decision either and to do it. You know, every state has different laws, but what is crystal clear is that that is a drastic invasion of the decision-making that lies with the elected prosecutor in the county. Um, and so, you know, what we are seeing at this point is that the Daisy Cates hearing has not been carried out. Um, I don't want to go too far since some things are pending, but we are very, very confident that there is no legal basis whatsoever for judges think that, thinking they, that they can fire the DA's office and be prosecutors whenever they feel like it, and they can prosecute cases that they're going to decide themselves. That doesn't work. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think, I think there was really a lot of shock on the part of many other judges who are mm -hmm. well aware that this is not okay. So the Conviction Integrity Unit, um, what does your, that office feel like its responsibility is within the criminal justice system? Uh, is it more, uh, you know, finding these wrongful convictions and overturning them, or is it more like a deterrent to the types of prosecution that led to those in the first place? So I think it's basically three things, although you've given me two options. I'm going to say it's two, but I'm going to add one yeah. to it. Um, I think first and foremost, it is to review cases to determine if wrongful convictions occurred. Mm -hmm. And if, in fact, they did, it's to ethically and legally do whatever is possible to fix that, to undo it. Um, but in order to get there, 
you first have to understand that doing that kind of work is a huge effort to try to change the culture in a prosecutor's office. And quite frankly, I think it goes beyond just changing the culture in a prosecutor's office, but it's also changing the culture in the criminal justice system. Because I think all too often prosecutors, and specifically and lawyers in general, don't want to look back. They don't want to admit that the system can get it wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think that you've got to be completely aware that the first goal of what we're trying to accomplish requires a recognition that the changing of the culture is necessary in order to be successful with the first one. Mm -hmm. Then, so those, that's two things. The mm -hmm. third thing is I think it's incredibly important that in doing those two things that you are cognizant of the fact that you want the work to be a deterrent. You want the work to signal to everybody who's doing it that it is so important that we learn from the mistakes of the past. If you don't learn from the mistakes of the past, you're going to continue to repeat them. And so now that we know we've had many years of looking at wrongful convictions and studying them, now that we know what the leading contributors are, I think we've got an obligation to make sure that within the prosecutor's office that prosecutors are educated about those things and that they do everything to, they can to make sure that they don't let it happen so you catch it up front. So hopefully you make decisions to say, hey look, this case isn't a righteous, strong case. Let's go ahead and deal with it now instead of taking it through trial and having somebody come back 10 years later and say, oops, maybe we didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say those are the three main objectives of the Conviction Integrity Unit. And so what are some of those leading contributors? So what, you, what, the, what the science, the studies have told us is that we, I'll start off with the science. Yeah. Um, a big part of wrongful convictions is what so many people refer to as junk science. Mm -hmm. um, Philadelphia is interesting in that regard, very different than Texas, at least my experience in Texas, because mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, it just seems that the way cases were prosecuted for so long there wasn't that much reliance on science per se. Instead, convictions were mainly obtained on confessions. Um, and of course, there is the, the strong component of eyewitness identifications, and of course, that's another problem with wrongful convictions. Um, but so you look at science as a leading contributor, you look at what most people would call government misconduct, and that could either be prosecutorial misconduct or it could be police misconduct. Mm -hmm. That's a significant contributor, eyewitness identifications. Um, and so essentially you've got those categories, and if you look at the statistics, if you're interested, just go onto the National Registry of Exonerations website and it'll have the breakdown. You'll be able to look at all of those factors in exonerations in general, but you'll also be able to see the fact broken out in what we call the DNA exonerations and um, so you, you it, I think it's helpful to kind of look at both categories because some people are going to put more stock in the DNA exonerations rather than just exonerations in general if someone is working in the Philadelphia DA office uh, should a public defender or a defense attorney in Philadelphia assume that you know because they work there and have chosen to work there and uh, comported themselves in a way that keeps their jobs, uh, that they're on board with these ideas, that they're on board with uh, 
toning down it, it first and eliminating it at second mass incarceration. Um, and are there people that are deciding to be prosecuted? We're actually in an interview room where very shortly people will be interviewing for the Philly DA office. And I'm interviewing you and you don't even know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> resumes, right? Okay. Um, and so are people deciding to be prosecutors but only if they get to work for uh, Mark Gonzalez or Larry Krasner? Uh, I think that exactly the people we are looking for are the ones who are saying, I'll work for Kim Fox, I'll work for George Gascon in San Francisco, I'll work for Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, I'll work for um, you know, Mark Gonzalez in Corpus Christi. Mm -hmm. I think those are exactly the people we are looking for. We're looking for people who could see themselves as being public defenders, um, but also you know, I hate to say it, I know I'm dealing with young folks in law school, but also understand that some people got to go to jail. I think that that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for people who have been watching reruns of Law and Order their whole life and are just dying to give a life sentence for retail theft. I don't want those people. But we also obviously would be in a bad spot if we hired people who think that no one should ever go to jail and that Charles Manson should be at home right now and it's terrible he did time, right? So we are looking for people who are super talented, super hardworking, and have a great big moral compass. There has been a problem with moral compasses in Philly. I don't know if it's the magnetism or the compass, but there has been a problem. <laughs> and that's how you get situations where, where you know you have exonerations, you have serious issues with corruption and so on that need to be corrected. Should defenders assume that they're going to feel the same way as prosecutors? Not all the time. I mean, there's different ethical obligations. A defender's obligation, which I know well from having been one, is to zealously represent your client without lying, cheating, or stealing. It is not your function to get at the truth. It is a prosecutor's function and ethical requirement to seek justice. And sometimes that means proving that that person actually did it and coming with whatever is an appropriate sentence after a conviction, right? So those are separate ethical obligations. The, the prosecutor's obligation, largely ignored, is almost a judicial obligation. It's to be the first filter for what the judiciary ideally would do or a jury would do. Um, it's to get at the truth, and that's just a different obligation. So no, there will be occasions when great public defenders are going to represent someone who's guilty as hell, and they're going to do it without lying, cheating, and stealing. They're going to try to get away from the truth, and that's what they're supposed to do, as long as they don't lie, cheat, and steal. And at the same time, you could have that same person switch jobs, be the prosecutor in the same case, but due to that different ethical obligation, they're going to push pretty hard towards what is the truth in that particular case. They both deserve to be respected. They both are doing a wonderful job as professionals. They're both complying with their ethical requirements, but they're not always going to agree. I wanted to ask a question. That just, I mean, you touched on it a little bit with um, being a blue dot inside of a you know red state. I think we have that in Austin uh, pretty heavily. You think so? Uh, yeah. Um, I was, uh, you know, just the... The racial disparities in the jail population here in Austin are crazy. Not something that you would say is like uh, reflective of the values that Austin purports to give out and what people think of Austin and the rest of the country. So is it harder to bring like attention to a problem um, as large as a mass, mass incarceration in a city that thinks of itself already as kind of like liberal and progressive. Um, and, you know, just like 
has it been difficult to overcome that hurdle? Yeah. So I want to hear from Patricia first on this one, if that's okay, because she's, yeah. she's the Austin hometowner, and then I'll jump in. Okay. So I think that's an absolutely fascinating question, um, and I, I think I can answer it now differently than I would have answered it eight months ago before I started working for Larry. Um, and I've heard him talk about this kind of in a general sense and not specific to Philadelphia and Austin, but this is what I think the answer is. I think that for too long um, we have had cities that are progressive and liberal, um, but when you start kind of breaking it down, the progressive attitude and the liberal attitude is about almost everything other than criminal justice. Um, and that is, we it, it's just too easy to deal with criminal justice with fear tactics, right? So whether it's the police department or the prosecutor, um, you know, I've, I've been in Austin, went to school here in 1984, so I've watched it for a long time, and I've known there were DAs um, in Travis County that were liberal Democrats, but I also know that they were tough prosecutors, and they, I think, at times worked on the fear of, my job is to lock people up. Right. And if I do not lock people up, I'm not going to keep my job. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just think that that is the problem. Mm -hmm. And I know just from being here recently for elections, I, I know that there is an effort to try to change that. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you with what Larry's doing in Philadelphia, Larry is far ahead of what I'm seeing happen in Austin. Um, and, and, you know, he's got a tough job ahead of him. Um, and it's interesting because I also pay attention to the news in Philadelphia and how people are reacting in Philadelphia to some yeah. of the things Larry's doing. Yeah. And then the news nationally. And in a lot of respects, I think people are applauding him louder outside the city of Philadelphia. Um, that's not to say that that it's easy to say that's everybody, but there is a lot of pushback within Philadelphia to the things that Larry's trying to do. Yeah. Do you want to finish your careers as prosecutors? At the end of your career, do you want to retire from being a prosecutor and that's how you want to finish it out? Do you have an answer? I do. Somebody asked me yesterday, I saw a couple of my Texas friends, and they asked me, they said, how long are you going to stay in Philadelphia? Um, and I think that that is Related to yeah. yeah, that's yeah. related to the question of how long are you going to be in a be a prosecutor in Philadelphia for Larry Krasner, and my answer is not at all based on thinking of prosecutor versus defense attorney. It's about I'm going to do it until I feel like I've accomplished what I can accomplish, um, and once I feel like I've gotten there, you know, then maybe I'll think about retiring on a beach or something. Um, so. <laughs> But there's a lot to be done, and I, and I will add what Larry said a little while ago is so true from what I'm seeing so far. There's a lot to be done in Texas, and Texas gets the rap it gets, I think, because of the death penalty. Mm -hmm. But in so many other areas, Texas is so far ahead. And I'm going to tell you, in conviction integrity, I feel like i got a lot more work to do in Philadelphia than I did in Texas, and I'm going to stay there as long as I can to try to accomplish what I think needs to be done. I guess my answer is I don't know what I'll end up doing, but I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't really matter what your title is. People say prosecutor. We well, forgot the first word, which is progressive prosecutor, which I frankly consider to be a, mm -hmm. a third and important species um, here. Do I want to? Would I end my career being a, you know, a, one of these 
old throwback. Law and order prosecutors, and by the way, they seem to know more about the order than the law. Uh, no, I wouldn't do that. Could I see par having part of my career be as a public defender? Sure. Could I see it as being a progressive prosecutor? Absolutely, because frankly, you know, having spent 30 years doing a lot of important individual justice and banging my head against the outside of the DA's office while they did dirt inside, um, I'm having fun coming inside cleaning it up and getting things done in sweeping ways for thousands of people, you know? So to me, it's a really important thing to do. I do believe this is the civil rights issue of our time, that there is no bigger, uh, and especially if I were early in my career, I would be looking to get on that bus, you know? I mean, this is this is the moment when you can be a freedom rider or not. I don't think it cares too much. It, ma it matters too much if you're driving the bus. I don't think it matters too much where you're sitting on the bus. There is God's work to be done as public defender, but there really is God's work to be done as a progressive prosecutor. It is a big battle. It is a war in many ways. I hate to talk about wars that way, but in some ways it's a war. We have to change so many institutions in order to make this happen, and it is happening, not just in Philly, but also in other places. So if this is the last thing I did, that would be a pretty good thing to do.